Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And he has often cast him into fire and to water to destroy him. But if he can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw their crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks and that we have in front of us your very word. And we thank you that in the Gospel of Mark, 
It is a, a book written about Jesus that even children can understand, for it is a, a simple and clear and even exciting story. But as we've experienced over the last couple of months, even as we dig deeper, there is uh, insights even for the mature Christian, for the, for the one who's been Christian for, for, for days, weeks, months, and years, as we come to really see who Jesus is and understanding who he is to be able to understand what it means to follow him. We pray as we think about this passage that you'll help us to know what it means to listen and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ and why it's crucial for us to do these two things as we follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as um, uh, Randy mentioned before, and it's in your bulletin announcements, we have a church camp, right, in October 4th to 7th. If you ever had a chance yet to put it in your diary, please do so. Uh, The 7th is a Monday, it's a public holiday, so the the 4th is a Friday. And if you're a worker, maybe you might want to think about taking half a day off so you can come to camp. Because if you've ever been to a camp, uh, you would know how awesome camps are. Uh, It's a pity that at, at our church we... We have camps only every other year uh, because whenever we go there, it's, it's such a great experience, isn't it, uh, for most of us? Uh, we usually call it the mountaintop experience because for some reason, most camps are held on mountaintops and it's like a slice of heaven. Uh, and whenever we have camps that only go for two days or three days, people want to be there for longer, you know, four or five days, never leave, right, to so stay in that kind of environment where we are hearing God's word, enjoying fellowship, and the singing seems to be better, the air seems to be cleaner, and everything just seems more wonderful. But we all know the experience after camp, what happens? You leave camp, and then you leave that mountaintop experience, and you're back into the valleys, the realities of life. And that impact of camp, it might last a day or two or a week, but then it slowly fizzles out, doesn't it? It's a bit like that with our Christian faith and our Christian walk. There are certainly moments where they feel like mountaintop experiences. And maybe for some of us, it might be the Sunday services. Maybe it might be a camp or a conference or or something. But then we know that we end up spending most of our time in the valleys, right? The realities of life. Maybe sometimes it's just sort of mundane. But other times, many times, it's difficult. It really feels like we are in the valleys. There's this roller coaster, isn't it, in our Christian walk? Now you can imagine, as the disciples were walking with Jesus in this part of Mark's gospel, their roller coaster ride would have been the extreme kind. You remember last week, we got to a real high point of the experience and understanding of Jesus. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And people were saying, you know, you are a prophet, an important religious guy. And then suddenly Peter, with the spiritual blindness removed, finally blurts out and confesses, you are the Christ. Now, if at that point, it's your first time you come to see Jesus for who he really is, the, the, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament hopes of the people of God, you can imagine the emotion that Peter would have felt in declaring that you are the Christ, this mountaintop experience. But no sooner does he say you are the Christ, Jesus says, let me tell you about the Christ. I, the Christ, will suffer. I'll be rejected by the religious leaders, and then I'll be crucified before I'll be raised again. And then he doesn't stop there, right? He, at this point, Peter's like, no way. But then Jesus continues. And not only that, the Christian life will be about losing your life now 
in order to save it in the future. And maybe you may remember this diagram from last week, right? It's about following the path of the Christ who will suffer, be rejected, and die is to suffer, be rejected, and die, to lose our life, to take up our cross for Jesus' sake in this life. And if you try to save your life, you try to live for yourself and live for this world, you will end up losing your life in the future. And so with this roller coaster ride, right? Mountaintop, you are the Christ. And then suddenly the realities of the Christian life. Now, at this point in time, at the end of chapter 8, if you were Peter and the other disciples, you may be extremely deflated and, and weeded out. You were expecting something great from the Messiah, and suddenly we're talking about suffering and difficulties and even dying. Now, Jesus said something pretty amazing, right? We, we read it at the end of last week's sermon, but we didn't actually talk about it much. Chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus makes this promise in chapter 9, verse 1. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Right? So, he makes this promise to them that they will see future glory in their lifetime. That some of these 12 will see the future glory of the kingdom of God come in power in their lifetimes. And this is an incredibly loving and incredibly encouraging thing to say, given what he's just said about having to lose your life for Jesus' sake. Now, why is this encouraging? Well, we do that to ourselves, don't we, right? So, um, you know, you guys have gone through periods of exams and and big assignments. And what do your parents sometimes say to you? You know, a boy or girl, you know, uh, study hard now. Because in a few weeks' time, you can play all the computer games you want. You can do all the shopping that you want, right? It's, it's a future glory for, for a 13-year-old playing computer games for the whole holidays. It's glory, right? But you've got to get through the exams first. Or if you're a bit more grown up, maybe we have a huge project or we have a difficult financial year that we've got to get through. And then what do we do? We, we book a holiday. And, and, and during these stressful times, we will go to Google and look at the accommodation we booked, this five-star hotel that we've got, or, or, or pictures of the holiday location. And uh, maybe it's pictures of uh, the, the cherry blossoms blooming because the, uh, you know, we're going to Japan, which is the, kind of the place of choice, it seems, for our church, right? We all want to go to Japan for a holiday. And when we're going through that difficult project, that, that stressful financial year, we, we, we look at images uh, of a future thing that is good to be able to get us through the tough times. We remind people and show them something good that is going to come to be able to help us get through the difficulties of the present. And that is exactly what Jesus do, does, doesn't he? It's an extremely loving and encouraging and coveting thing to do, to promise that he will show them something great to be able to get through the present. And that's exactly what Jesus does. It's not just some Google image of the holiday location, but a full-blown, mind-blowing glimpse of the heavenly, glorious, post-Easter Jesus. Six days later, we are told, Jesus takes three of these 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, where we are told that he is transfigured, right? that he is transformed in such a way that such a bright light shines out from him that is beyond what, what we've ever seen in this world, what they've ever seen in this world. Now, when you look at scriptures, this is kind of otherworldly blindness is always associated with God. 
Right? In the Old Testament, whenever God makes an appearance, it's always in, in a blinding light, the Shekinah glory, where people cannot stand how bright it is. They close their eyes and bow down. Brightness is an expression of God's divinity, of Jesus' divinity. And so six days after Jesus promises these disciples, they get a glimpse, the revelation of Jesus' power, the kingdom of God coming power before their very eyes. And the kingdom of God, of course, is also revealed in power in many more ways to the disciples. For fast forward a, a few more weeks and Jesus is dying on the cross, the power of God to save the world. The kingdom of God coming glory in a way that people don't expect, but it's there on the cross. And then, of course, in the empty tomb and the resurrection, another demonstration of the kingdom of God coming power. And then again, in the ascension, when Jesus raises back up 40 days later. And then again, when he sends the Holy Spirit to fill the disciples. All different experiences of this future glory that the disciples get. It's an incredible thing that Jesus does, isn't it? It's an incredible pastor. You know, he really knows what his disciples need. He knows he's just said to them something really difficult about what it means to be a Christian. But he gives them hope. He gives them a promise. He gives them something that can motivate them to keep on going. And we understand this, don't we? The road, is, the road of discipleship is incredibly difficult. There is no doubt about it. You, you cannot open the Word of God. You cannot read the words of Jesus and, and the, the words of the apostles as they write the letters, and not come to the conclusion that the Christian life is very challenging. You just cannot, okay? Uh, we, we, we may want to say that the Christian life is easy, and that it's full of victory all the time, but that would be to not really read what the Bible says. But for now, what we get here is, is this glimpse of future glory, and Jesus is saying it's real, He's showing them it's real. Now, besides Jesus being transfigured up on a mountain, we suddenly see the appearance of two guys, right? Elijah and Moses from the Old Testament. Now, how the disciples knew it was Elijah and Moses, I'm not sure, right? Because obviously they've been dead like a thousand years. There's no Facebook or Instagram photos, you know, to check. Uh, Maybe they just introduce themselves, right? Like, I'm Elijah, nice to meet you. I'm not sure, okay? They're not told us. But what we do know is that they're important guys. And what's the significance of Elijah and Moses showing up next to Jesus? Now, if you didn't know, there are many reasons why people think that they're there, but I'm going to give you two that I think are really relevant to this scene. The first is that Elijah and Moses are both prophets from the Old Testament that are meant to usher in the end times when God will come back to establish his eternal kingdom. So if you know your Old Testament, at the end, Malachi is a prophet who wrote about a prophet like Elijah who will come to prepare the way of the Messiah to bring in the end. And if you were here at the beginning of the sermon series, you would know that this Elijah-like prophet was John the Baptist as he prepared the way for the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And if you know Deuteronomy, as as Moses' life is about to come to an end, we are told that a a prophet like Moses will come as, in a way, the final word of God, the final prophet. And, that's, and we know in the last few chapters that Jesus is that kind of Moses. So we've got Elijah and Moses, these end-time prophets, right? Trying to shining a spotlight on Jesus, telling us something. Now, the second thing is, Elijah and Moses are, are said to be people who have ascended straight into heaven. So many of you might know Elijah. He didn't actually kind of die. He was kind of just transported. 
And even though Moses did die, the legend has it that he's there with God right now. And so, Elijah and Moses in heaven, Elijah and Moses with Jesus, where are we? We're kind of in heaven, aren't we? Well, they are, not we, but Peter, James, and John. They've kind of been transported into heaven just for a moment to be able to show them that the future glory, the future heaven is real. Now, at this point in time, Peter is gobsmacked. Right, you know, he's literally got his jaw on the ground. He's like this. All right, and you would be too, right? If you saw this out of this world shining glory of Jesus and then Elijah and Moses, you, 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 it's jaw dropping. Now, anyway, Peter, he doesn't really know what to say because he's so freaked out, right? But he picks his jaw up off the ground and then he does say something because when you don't know what to say, what do you do? You say, right? You say something stupid, actually. Uh, and that's what Peter does. He says, uh, Can I build a tent? For you three VIPs, right? Now you kind of wonder, what, what is he trying to do here? Why do you build a tent? You build a tent because you think someone's going to stay, correct? Uh, otherwise, you just build a stool, right? You build a tent because tents are where people lived. It might be for a temporary time, but you're, you're thinking that they're going to remain. And it, and it shows what Peter's thinking. He still has his mindset on a Messiah that will come and who will bring about a military victory, nationalistic victory, wholesale conquering, or removing of the Romans and the establishment of God's kingdom right now. And, and, Jesus, and he sees Jesus in his glory. He sees Elijah and Moses, and he thinks, let's, let's build tents because glory is here. The time has come. Now, as soon as Peter finishes saying this kind of nonsense, a voice from heaven speaks. And the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Obviously, this is the father speaking. And he's saying, Peter, stop talking. Start listening. That's what he's saying, right? Stop talking. Because you don't know what you're talking about. Start listening. Because Peter is still stuck with a wrong view and is speaking from that wrong, wrong view. He still doesn't get, does he, what Jesus has been saying in the previous chapter, that suffering must come first and then glory, that the Christ must suffer, be rejected and killed before he rises again, that Jesus has been saying that the Christian life is about taking up the cross, suffering, being rejected, and even getting killed in various ways before we rise again in the future. And so this voice from heaven has to come down and say, Listen to my son. You've got to let his words change your wrong thinking and your wrong understanding. You've got to let my son tell you what is truly true, what is really real about life, and what it means to follow him. Now, I've said this many times, and I'll keep saying it over and over again, that we simply do not have the option of picking and choosing what we want to believe about Jesus and picking and choosing what we believe about the Christian life. It is not for us to choose our own adventure. It is not for us to have sincere beliefs about what we want to believe. The only option we have is to listen to what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus says following him means, what following him looks like. We have no other option. For any other option is not truth, is not reality, and it ultimately isn't life. 
Now, you know, years later, Peter would write a letter to reflect on this mountaintop experience, this glorious experience. And this is what he says, right, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." So the quote there is probably from the other time where that voice from heaven came in Mark 1. But you can see he's also talking about this experience being on the holy mountain where he heard another voice from the same man, the same father, about the son. Right? So he's the eyewitness of this amazing vision and hearing this amazing heavenly divine voice. Correct? But listen to what Peter says next in verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You hear that? Peter just said, we were eyewitnesses, right? We being Peter, James, and John, of this vision of the transfigured Jesus in his full glory, We were there when we heard the voice from God the Father himself. But you have what is more sure, the prophetic word. The prophetic word. It's amazing, isn't it? He's saying to us that he actually listened to the voice from heaven, and so he listened to the Son. Him and the other disciples, they listened carefully, and when the Spirit was given to them, they wrote it all down, so that we can have the more sure prophetic word that can tell us about Jesus and about the Christian life. You know, on that mountaintop, the moment the voice speaks, the vision vanishes because there is no need for visions anymore. We now have the command that echoes down through time to us into the future that listening to Jesus is what is most important and what is most best for us. We don't have to go and chase after visions. We don't have to go rely on experiences. In fact, we shouldn't. Because Jesus is the Word of God, the final revelation of God. Listen to the Son. What we need is His Word, which we have. What we need is to study this Word and to understand it, to be impacted by it, and then to respond to it and to live it out. Peter saying the glory that he witnessed This is more glorious because it is more sure. Now, I wonder whether that's how we see this. I don't know what your Bible looks like. Maybe it's brand new because you've hardly used it. Or maybe it's falling apart. Maybe you only have it on your phone or on your computer. But I wonder in the morning when you think to do your quiet time and you go to open your Bible, whether it's just so filled with mundaneness, such a chore, or whether you go to it and it almost has some kind of shining light Not visible, of course. But is there an attraction to how glorious and good this is? I don't know about you guys, but I struggle to see the Bible that way sometimes. It does feel like just words on a page and mundane and difficult to understand at parts. 
But at other moments, we know it is the very word of life. It is the glorious truth that sets us free. It is what we can build our lives upon because it helps us to know Jesus and what it means to trust him and follow him. Now, we, we may have experiences, and sometimes we may wonder whether we saw a vision or we got some kind of connection, a heavenly glimpse. Yeah, maybe, but it's less sure. All we need to do is go back to this. If those things help us to go back to the word, the more sure prophetic word, then praise be to God. And will we read it? And will we listen to the sun? Listen to the sun. Now, the mountaintop experience is over, right? We get to, uh, to, to verse 8, it's over. And, and they head back down the mountain. Now, literally and metaphorically, they descend back into the reality of this world, don't they? It literally goes from a mountaintop experience back down to the real world. Now, from verse 9 to 13, it's a bit complicated, and I won't go into it in detail, okay? But clearly, it's about suffering. Right? Back into the real world, back into suffering, which obviously the disciples still don't get. Right? Jesus is talking about uh, Elijah and, and rising from the dead, and they're like, huh, what, what rising from the dead? What kind of, why, was it, why is the Messiah talking about dying again? And, and Jesus tells them, well, the, the prophet Elijah has come, and we know it's John the Baptist, remember? And, and look at what happened to him. Right? He was persecuted, and then he was beheaded by Herod, as we saw a few chapters back. And he said that as Elijah, the messenger, ben John the Baptist, the messenger, was persecuted and died, so I will suffer, be persecuted, and die, and so will you, disciples of me, be persecuted, suffer, and die. Now, I'm wondering whether you've ever wondered, why is it that we talk about suffering so much at SLE Church? Some people comment that SLE Church is, is a bit depressing to come, right? The songs are so serious. Why aren't they more worshipful? Whatever that means. And then why do we talk about sin and suffering so much? Well, it's because Jesus talks about it so much. It's because Paul talks about it so much, as does Peter, as does James. Everybody in the Bible talks about it so much. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be ready? There's a reason why it talks about it so much. It's because it happens, it's real, it's the reality of what it means for the Christ to experience life and what it means for us to experience life. You know, today many of us here and in the world profess faith in Jesus. And we would gladly wear a cross around our neck, a symbol of suffering and death. And we would be able to talk about the fact that the Christian life is the cross-carrying life. Many of us can talk about that. Yet, many of us are still surprised and unprepared for the suffering and persecution that comes. We're deeply uncomfortable, aren't we, sometimes? As we sit in the comfort of this room, as we go into the comfort of our cars, as we go home to the comfortable uh, apartments and houses that we live in, and we, we mingle in a comfortable society, and we go home to a comfortable place and to a comfortable job, the moment suffering and persecution arise, we're uncomfortable. It's, it's weird. You know, two years back, there was a same-sex marriage postal survey in Australia. And Christians were very worried about what happens with the rise of the LGBTQI agenda and what does that mean for us as Christians. And and many Christians shrunk back and not wanted to say too much. In recent weeks, Israel Falau, if you're a follower of football, 
as he, you know, posts on Instagram, talking about the reality of hell and of judgment and of Jesus being the only Savior and the need to repent and believe. We were like, come on, we, we kind of agree. We, actually, we do agree because the Bible says so, but did you really have to do that? And we want to, we, we, maybe we're a bit more cautious about being a friend of Israel and maybe a friend of Jesus. And of course, last week in Sri Lanka, as we've prayed, as you've heard, no doubt, as Christians were targeted and, and more than 300 were killed on Easter Sunday, you know, maybe you wonder, this is real. Christians are, are dying, but, but is it very far removed from us? Is it the assumption that that is extraordinary? That that is something that will happen to only other people? Or do you realize that they are suffering the kind of sufferings that we ought to expect to suffer in this life? Our assumption often is that these things are out of the ordinary Christian experience. And we need the constant reminders, just like the original disciples, that this is the normal cross-shaped, suffering, even dying kind of life. And there are many ways to die for Jesus. Many ways, isn't there? Now, as we continue on the story, the suffering continues as Jesus and the disciples rejoin the rest of the disciples. And it's clear that we're well and truly back into the real world now. Jesus returns uh, to a thoroughly broken world with people um, in bondage, aren't they, to evil and to sickness and, and to death. If you read the story from verse 14 to 29, it's just reeking of brokenness and, and death. Um, Anyway, when you read the story in verse 14 to 29, it sounds just like many of the stories we've already read uh, in Mark's gospel, correct? We see a, a great need. And as you read the story, there's a great detail about this boy, poor thing. He suffers so much, right, being possessed by this evil spirit. Uh, he, his life is a living hell. And, and this evil spirit wants to even drag this boy really literally into hell, right? He wants to kill this boy many times. He's tried as we read the story. There's a great need. But then we see that there's a great savior. Uh, with a simple statement, Jesus, the Christ, casts out the evil spirit, and the boy is instantly made well. And then we know from the previous chapters that when he does this, he's demonstrating, again, his authority, right? And his power as the Christ, right? The Son of God. That's what all the evil spirit casting out exorcisms showed before, and it shows here again. But there's, there's something a little bit different about this story, isn't it? Something emphasized. But one thing that's interesting in this story that we see is that it does also give us a glimpse of future glory, even in the midst of the brokenness of this valley. Have you noticed that this boy has been teetering on the edge of death for years? The Spirit has been trying on many occasions to put him to death, drowning him and harming him. And even after the Spirit is cast out, have you noticed the way Mark tells the story? They, he says that he looks like a corpse. After he's been cast out, he seems to just be lying there like a corpse to the point where some people even look on him and say, wow, is, is he dead? It's death is kind of, the stench of death is throughout this story. And in light of that stench of death, we see resurrection in the story. That Jesus comes to raise this boy up. And then we're told that he arose. Right? Just as Jesus said, he will die and then be raised again. So we see in this story a boy who seems dead and is raised up into life. So we have in most part a very typical story we've seen before, but another reminder of a glimpse of heaven. 
But there's something else that's emphasized here as well, right? That's really the point of this passage. And it has to do with the theme of faith, or really the theme of unfaith, of unbelief, of a lack of trust, of doubt, all the way through the story. We see it at the beginning in verse 14 with the disciples who curiously weren't able to cast out this evil spirit from this boy, which is really strange, right? Because if you read chapter 6, a few chapters back, the disciples were all sent on short-term missions. You remember this? And they were given the authority of Jesus, and they were casting out demons left, right, and center, right? Like they were throwing out rubbish, right, at the end of the day. Right? It's so easy. And then two chapters, three chapters later, and they can't cast out one evil spirit from the boy. Maybe they thought, you know, I'll say, well, out you come. Then nothing happened. So they said, out you come in Jesus' name. And then nothing happened. And then maybe, abracadabra. I don't know. What, I don't know what they're trying to do, but nothing happened. And then the crowds and disciples, they're, they're arguing about why it's not working. And then Jesus comes and they ask Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response to this? Verse 19. What is the problem? Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You see, to the crowds and to the disciples, he says that the problem that you're facing is that you're part of a faithless generation, you disciples included. Right, the crowds, maybe they don't believe. The disciples, they don't seem to believe either faithless generation. The whole generation is, is, is infected with this problem called faithlessness. We see faithlessness also in the Father, don't we? The Father says to Jesus at the end of verse 21, he says to Jesus, from childhood this evil spirit has sought to destroy my boy. But if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Really? If you can do anything? Now, literally, you can, is you are able or you have the power. Right? So it's a beautiful Greek word called, uh, that's related to dunamis, right? Dynamite, right? Power. If you have the power, if you have the power, I, hello? I mean, this is, this is the context of Jesus already having done so many miracles and displayed so much power. It is Caesarea Philippi, right? This is not somewhere where Jesus hasn't walked around. This is where crowds have gathered because they've heard about Jesus. And this father can say, if you have the power, clearly this father fits right into this faithless generation. And Jesus answers, man, all things are possible for one who believes. You know, in the context, what is this thing that all, what, what are all things that are possible? It's the cry for help. All cries for help to, to, have, to be rid of evil and to be rid of sin and to be rid of brokenness and death and troubles in this world. They are all possible because Jesus makes it possible. He's shown that over and over again, right? That all things needed for us to be rescued from sin and evil in this world, for us to be restored in, in holiness and wholeness and right living, for us to be raised up back into eternal life where we belong, where we we're created for. Jesus has been showing over and over again, He can do it. 
You just have to trust him. The father responds with words that reflect so many of us so much of the time. The father's famous words. Do you know them? I believe. Help my unbelief. What a cry, isn't it? I believe. Help my unbelief. Doesn't the father have a faith that is like so many of us? That we were this curious contradiction of being believers and being unbelievers. Now, many of you, maybe most of you, are believers. You'll be able to say, I believe, I definitely believe in my mind, I acknowledge Jesus as God, as King, and as Savior. In my heart, I sense a conviction that Jesus really is who he says he is, and I believe. And with our lips, we will tell people, In our Bible study, we will read verses and we will share our answers that Jesus is God, the Savior. We will tell our friends even. We will pluck up the courage to tell people to believe in the Jesus that we believe in. And in our lives, we will even do things that show that we trust Jesus, won't we? We will come to church every week and go to Bible study. We will stop swearing. We will stop wasting money. We will stop sleeping with our boyfriend or girlfriend. We will, in many different ways, we show we believe. Correct? Yes? Are you believers? You do, right? Be confident. Because you are believers. Yet, we don't have to dig very far or very deep to see that doubts often swim around in our minds. There are doubters in this room, aren't there? Is Jesus really the only Savior? Is His gospel really true? Can I really trust that the Bible really is the Word of God? the ultimate authority for all matters of life and doctrine. And our hearts can sometimes feel so far away from God. We drift, and we drift. And we're like our phone reception, aren't we? Sometimes we are four bars, but other times we're just one bar or no reception. Sometimes our hearts feel far away. We're so disconnected, and our lips and our lives, well, so often they betray our faithlessness to Jesus. It's not just that we don't speak about Jesus or, 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 or to Jesus. It's sometimes we actually literally deny him in the choices that we make, in the things that we say, in the things that we do. We see and say that Jesus is the rightful king of our lives, and yet we are holding on to the steering wheel. He's king, he tells me what to do, but I've got the steering wheel, and I will be king, I will be captain. I will be the driver in charge of my direction and my pursuits. We cannot let go of the plans that we have made about how we want to go about our studies, our work, our relationships. We say that Jesus is the greatest treasure, yet we show that we treasure a lot of other things as much, if not more, than Jesus. Our achievements, our relationships, our work, our our, our pleasures, oftentimes. We say that God, that Jesus is deserving of our worship, yet we practice idolatry almost every day. We worship ourselves. We worship significant people in our lives, our parents, our boyfriend and girlfriend, our children. We worship our work. We worship so many things rather than worshiping God. That's so weird, isn't it? We believe, yes, 
and yet we struggle with unbelief. And so the Father's prayer, the Father's cry, the Father's plea can be our plea. These five words, maybe you want to pray them. Maybe you want to cry out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. In crying out those words, you're recognizing the ideal that you believe to be true, that you want to hold on to. But in crying this out, you're also recognizing that you need help. I need help. For without the power of God through His Spirit, Spirit of His Son living in us, how will we ever overcome our unbelief? Can I encourage us to let this Father's cry be our cry, let His longing and be our longing today. Now we finish off with one final picture of unbelief. It's the explanation of why the disciples failed to cast out the evil spirit. So we are told right at the beginning that they are part of this faithless generation, and we're kind of wondering why they didn't believe. What did they do that showed their unbelief? Right, Verse 28. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, what do I say, or what does Jesus say, that the disciples are faithless? And the answer is, it's because they didn't pray. Now, whatever it is that they were trying to do with this boy, it obviously didn't involve asking God to do it. It obviously didn't involve asking God. Because prayer is simply to rely on God, isn't it? Prayer is speaking to someone that you depend on to provide for something that you need. Because you wouldn't pray to God if you can get it for yourself, correct? If you can achieve it for yourself, why pray? Prayer reflects dependence that only God and only Jesus can provide what it is you're asking for. Otherwise, you don't pray because you can get it and you can do it for yourselves. And so prayer really is one of the greatest proofs that you do, in fact, trust Jesus, that you do, in fact, rely on Jesus to give us all that we need for this life and the next, that all that we need to be able to walk this life of putting ourselves to death and following Jesus. Prayer is the proof of genuine faith. And so, if we have a sick prayer life, it is the evidence of a Sick faith, isn't it? So many of us would try almost anything to solve our problems before going to Jesus in prayer. So many of us will go through life making our small, medium, and big decisions, trying to figure it out on our own, going to Google, going to family and friends, reading books, maybe even Christian books and blogs. And only when you come to the end of your tether, only when you're on crisis mode, that we throw up a prayer to God. Sometimes we're like that, aren't we? Or we think that God isn't really in control of the small things in our lives. So I will go through my merry day and I'll only pray at the end of a Bible study. I'll only pray at the end of, or the beginning of a meal. And even then, it's just a mantra. There is no real sense of reliance when we pray. You know, when I think about our church, uh, I'm not sure what you think about Esteli Church when it comes to prayer, but I've been a pastor of this church for 10 and a half years now, and I've been coming along to this church for thir- almost 30 years. 
And I will have to say, and the elders and leaders will agree with me, that we are not really known to be a prayerful church. I'm not sure what you think. You can tell me later. But we're not really known to be a prayerful church. We've had prayer meetings in the past, but we seldom have them anymore. All right? There's various reasons, but the reality is that we don't have them any, many more. And the last time we had a prayer meeting as a church was about a year ago, and there were about 60 or 70 people that came. Now you look around the room, how many people do you think sit in this room every week? It's about between 160 to 180, right? 180 normally during term time. You know how many go to the first service? About 120 to 140. And then, you know, kids, they can pray too, right? There's about 40 SLD kids in Sunday school. So you do the math, 180, let's go maximum numbers now, okay? 180 plus 140 plus 40, that's like 360. 60 people at a church prayer meeting out of 360 people. It says something, doesn't it, about our church and our desire to pray. And you know, the reasons are, oh, you know, praying time is like 1.30. If I'm in the first service, I already left church. I go for lunch. I got other things to do. Or we're like, oh, you know, prayer is like the time where we don't have official wife Bible study. It's a chance to go back and study more. Right? It's a good chance to go and catch up with my friends. And what fellowship group? What is it like? You know, there's YF International, YF Sunday. There's some clay people here, some SOS family groups. What is prayer like in our fellowship groups? What is the highlight of going to these things? I know the highlight is fellowship, right? We, we, we enjoy hanging out with each other. The highlight is going to McDonald's afterwards, right, to get our nuggets. The highlight is even the Bible study. Many of us love that bit, and it's great to Bible study, isn't it? And sometimes we go on for about an hour, and depending on your leader, one and a half hours, maybe sometimes two hours. And sometimes you're even really excited to learn so much. But how much of us go to a fellowship group desiring to express our relationship with God, our trust in Jesus in prayer? Is that a highlight or is it just a tack-on at the end of our meetings together? And what about our personal lives? What about our personal lives? Now, I want to... I will start off by saying that I, I've, been, I've, I've struggled with praying to God in the last, well, maybe six weeks especially. Uh, I've been really trying to, to be spiritually refreshed, uh, making a greater commitment to read my Bible. And, and it's been a struggle, the reading the Bible part, for sure. But the good thing about the Bible is it's there. And I open it, and sometimes I get sidetracked, right, on my computer or whatever. But eventually, it's still there, and I just read. Well, not so bad. I read the Bible most days. But then when I close my Bible and I go to pray, suddenly, like, I don't know what happens. You know what I'm talking about? You start saying something in your, in your brain, and then suddenly I'm thinking about the email I need to send. Right? I hear voices upstairs, right? the kids wanting something. And then I go to the, oh, this eBay thing I wanted to buy. I was finishing. Right? And then, oh, yeah, I've got to go to the library and borrow that book. And then suddenly we don't pray anymore. And then we just carry on with our day, don't we? Now, I really want us to encourage, I want to really encourage us. It is, in a way, it's, it's, it's the lifeblood of being a Christian. Uh, these things, the word of God and prayer. I mean, it sounds like Sunday school answers, right? At the end of the day, this sermon is, what is it? Jesus, the Bible, and prayer. It's the only answers you need as a Sunday school kid, correct? 
Every answer that any Sunday school teacher ever asks can be answered by Jesus, the Bible, and prayer. You can teach your kids that, right? They'll be like A, A, A students. But it's also the answer for us. It really is the answer for us. The Christian life is mountaintops and valley lows. And in fact, the shape of the Christian life is more about suffering and difficulties and sacrifice as we pursue holiness, as we put sin and self to death, as we stand up for Christ in a Christless, faithless world. It's difficult. We thank God that there are various mountaintop experiences and glimpses of heaven, yes. Coming to church on a Sunday to me is part of that. But we always go back out from here into the real world, don't we? And Jesus tells us that we need to listen to him and we need to pray. We need to listen to him and we need to trust him. Will that be what we do? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we sometimes, oftentimes, forget the incredible privilege it is that we have your very word in our hands, in the more sure word, the prophetic word, the Bible. And we, we ask you to forgive us, and we ask you to change us in the way that we have seen your word, that we often take it for granted. We see it as being so mundane and even such a chore to have to read and understand. Help us to see the glory that it is, that it is what we need to know who you are, to know who your son is, and what does it mean, and what does it look like to follow him. We thank you too for the amazing privilege that we have to be able to speak to you in prayer, as we're doing right now, without any barriers, without any limitations at all. That we don't have to go through some high priest, we don't have to go to a special place, that because your son by his spirit dwells in us, we can talk to you directly, intimately like this, that the bar of reception is always four out of four. And yet we, we fail to, to talk to you. We would do anything but rely on you. We would rely on our own thoughts and our own strength, our own intellect and rationale. We would rely on our friends and, and our family and their wisdom and what the world says. We would go to anywhere for solutions, for help, for guidance, for inspiration, rather than go to you. We thank you that your word teaches us today that life really is about following Jesus and to do so by listening to him and trusting him. So we pray, Father, this week and the weeks to come, Please give us the strength we need to pick up your word. Give us the illumination we need to understand it. By your spirit, stir up the will to live it out. That you will help us to overcome such neglect of speaking to you by helping us to pray. Help us to be in prayer on our knees in a private. Help us to pray as we drive, as we walk. Help us to direct our problems and our joys in your direction each day. We pray this for our good and joy, but ultimately for the glory of your Son. For in his name we pray.